And just taking these moments to acknowledge how it is right now. And to notice if that comes with a story of how it should be or how you should be. So you can notice how it is and you can notice the story. And just allow all that to be held in a friendly, compassionate awareness. So as you continue to arrive, feeling yourself coming ashore, coming home to rest in your chosen spot. There's something about this gesture of just taking our seat, especially if we have a, a place where we tend to do that but just sends a signal to the body and mind that okay now I can now I can rest and regroup so I have my my setup here I have my my on my floor setup I have my standing up doing qigong setup and I have my armchair setup which I'm in just now She's all very lovely, but it's. <laughs> I was just noticing what a shifting target happiness is because I couldn't get my cushions right. <laughs> and now what funny creatures we are in that way. So I hope that your cushions are feeling right, just how you are, <laughs> or good enough. And if you had a scramble to be here, just letting yourself take a moment or two to to relax. And if you've been waiting patiently and expectantly for the evening entertainment or dharma nutriment, then just noticing that too. Recognizing that we're here together, really in the heart of our retreat now. We've been practicing together for more than 48 hours. Maybe it seems like a short time or maybe it seems like an eternity, but a lot of beautiful work has been done. So just giving yourself some appreciation for that. when it, it doesn't have to be yourself, just appreciating that, appreciating what you've brought to it, what the community's brought to it, what we've received from this tradition that's flowing through us all.
sort of resting on the on the wave of a lot of generosity of the generosity of those who've given their efforts to these practices over many many centuries from whom we've caught sparks of inspiration or guidance or information that we all bring to what we're doing and then it kind of flows together in this particular form for the duration of this retreat and then it flows on So I wonder how it's going for you. It was really nice to connect with some of you in the smaller groups this afternoon and to hear a little bit about what you're experiencing and how these how these offerings that Kirsten and I are making are touching you and just the humanity that we all bring to this and how how easy it is to kick off our comparing minds with one another. As we, we learn from each other, we get inspiration from one another and the mind does its little comparing dances as we start to you know, take shape and identities that we move into these uh, ways of fixing ourselves or identifying ourselves almost like we 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 kind of we've we naturally try to seek those because uh it feels somehow more stable to assume an identity than to mm, inhabit our our fluidity i found my own comparing mind kicking off earlier today about uh, the background sounds and thinking, oh, I wish I had Kirsten's beautiful bird song in my background. And uh, instead, right now, it's actually, probably, it's probably going to subside and we probably can't hear it, but I have a music practice. And recently, when I've been trying to teach meditation online, I've sometimes had incidents of my, my 16 and 18-year-old nieces live next door alone with their mother, who's like me but doesn't practice meditation. And sometimes when I've been trying to teach meditation online or meta, we have screaming and door banging and thumping on a piano. (laughs) And I'm thinking, that's not going to give people the experience that I want you to have. I want you to have a beautiful experience of divine birdsong and inspirational silence. And you might get a few screams and door bangs or a stomping on the staircase. And then the mind just goes into comparing with that. And it's so... uh, uh, We can create suffering out of anything. I mean, I know that's a a very... uh, trivial form of suffering but still it's amazing what the mind can do with things so these these worldly winds that Kirsten mentioned this morning these winds of uh, pleasure and pain of gain and loss things going according to how we want them and not how we want them of praise and blame of uh, either being praised and blamed from outside or praised and blamed by our own inner judge and critic 
and uh, its wider, wider relative fame and disrepute, our public, public, re um, um, what's the word? Reputation, you know, are constantly um, fluctuating according to conditions. And so this energy moves from one, one extreme to another, the extreme of things going really feeling like they're going really well or things feeling like they're going really badly um, I think winds is a really um, good metaphor for this the way that we we feel kind of like we're being shaken by these winds the Buddha also used winds as a metaphor for the experience of Vedana of just the feeling tones of pleasant and unpleasant experience he said it's like having hot and cold winds and strong winds and gentle winds and wet winds and dry winds blowing on you all the time we're constantly assailed by these fluctuations in circumstance and this is one of the places where I really like this metaphor or image of the tree that uh, feels the winds rustling through its leaves and branches. But it doesn't get pushed over. If the tree is well-rooted and healthy and resilient, it actually moves a little with the winds, but it doesn't get pushed over. It can actually find its way back to balance. You know, it might sway a lot side to side and it finds its way back to balance. And I mentioned, I think on the first evening, I mentioned a couple of lines from this teaching that I really like, the Mangala Sutta, the discourse on the highest happiness, where I said that one of the first things that the Buddha taught about uh, causes for happiness was the practice of honoring, expressing, honoring and uh, giving actually actual expression to that, what we value, what's important, honouring what's worthy of honour. And that, that sutta culminates with saying if, if one, if one um, cultivates all these causes of happiness, then the result is that we are touched by the worldly winds, by the worldly dharmas, but the heart is unshaken. So we're still touched by the experiences of um, things arising, taking form, taking shape in beautiful ways and in difficult ways, but we're not overthrown by them. And that mischievously, I like to think of it in terms of James Bond and the possibility of being shaken but not stirred. So we, we're, not, we're neither untouched nor are we overthrown by these uh, changing circumstances. And Kirsten has really laid out this territory so beautifully for us. I don't know that I, I mean, I can't improve on what she's offered. So I'm just adding a few reflections of my own. And I also want to offer some images in a moment to you and uh, a longer poem that is actually one of my favorite Dharma texts of all time, which really speaks to this whole territory. Um, because 
I think some of us respond well to to images and to and to poetry and I hope that you might find that useful and nourishing for your heart one of the things maybe to just add a few thoughts around is the way that um, we crystallize ourselves into uh, the stories that we have about ourselves or we um, yeah we I'm just the, again hearing hearing what people had to say in the in our meeting this afternoon the way that we we kind of arrive at or we we recognize something about ourselves, and we describe we get into a habit of describing or perceiving ourselves in a certain way and we start taking that on as an identity and then we kind of live it as a self-fulfilling prophecy often until we get so fed up with it or um, something forces us to actually experiment with changing it or experiment with what happens if I do otherwise, if I don't um, inhabit my story in that way. And rather than making that bad or wrong, to just recognize that this is what the human mind does. And we are creatures of story making and meaning making. So one of my other favorite Dharma books is a book called The World is Made of, or current favorite Dharma books, because again, this is something that changes, is is a a short book called The World is Made of Stories by the uh, American Zen teacher David Loy that just talks about this phenomenon of the way that everything that we can say about or Uh, used to define ourselves in the world is actually a story and that stories are built on layers and layers of other stories and we need them and they're useful but we hold on to them in the wrong way we take them as having more solidity and substance than they actually than they actually deserve so the story of who I am and how I am rather than taking it as a an absolute truth maybe seeing it more like a a suit of clothing that we put on that in a certain circumstance may be appropriate but in other circumstances it becomes either like a suit of armor or a or a trap for us And when we find ourselves inhabiting a particular story, we can ask, well, who do I become when I inhabit this story? And what are the consequences of inhabiting this story? And we can get really confused about, well, is it true or is it not true? So just to give you one example, I suppose when I started spending time in in the States, when I did my Dharma teacher training that I did in the States. And uh, because of the kind of um, deep trauma around racial injustice that is 
of course exists all over the world, but is particularly strongly felt in the States. There's a real encouragement to explore one's racial identity. And I happen to be half Chinese. And so there was quite a lot of um, encouragement given to me to explore my identity as what's called in the United States, a person of color. And so I can story myself as a person of color. And that woke me up to certain things, certain ways that my life has been influenced and impacted by the fact that my, my mother is Chinese and lived pretty much since the age of 12 in a country where, in, uh, here in the UK, when there were very few Chinese people around in the circles that she moved in or none. And that influenced her way of being in the world, which has influenced me. But at the same time, you know, I've grown up pretty much like a white person in the UK. And so that's also a part of my identity. And if I inhabit that side of the identity, a different set of things constellate. And then I can get very confused about where do I belong and what am I really? And this is one of those things where the, the idea that of a non-binary uh, well, the world is actually a non-binary place is really, really helpful because I see that that's a, a spectrum that I can shift around in. I don't have to land in some saying, well, this is, this is what I am. In certain situations, I constellate in one way. In certain situations, I constellate in another. And when we inhabit a particular story about ourselves, certain things get revealed and certain things get left out. And it's not necessarily around a racial identity or maybe a gender identity or one's sexual preferences. But even around things like, well, am I, a, am I an outspoken person or am I a shy person? Am I a courageous person or am I a coward? Am I... You know, am I a good practitioner or a bad practitioner? And those generally are not very helpful stories, either of those two to get stuck in. But sometimes it's good to give ourselves a pat on the back for our diligence and our and our and our um, accomplishments in practice, for the insights that we have, for the progress that we see ourselves made. And sometimes it's quite good to actually feel into the thing well actually I could I could do better here I could be making a more sincere effort and we shift along that spectrum but if we get stuck in that I've got to decide I'm this or that what we do is we fall into we fall into the hindrance of doubt which is paralyzing and debilitating and prevents us seeing anything clearly So when we find ourselves inhabiting a story, just an invitation to notice that, that that's what's happening and to notice, is the story serving us at the moment? And are we taking it to be the whole of reality or do we have a kind of fluid, kindly, as we said earlier, non-aggressive relationship to the story that we find ourselves inhabiting? 
So one of the things I wanted to share with you this evening, and I'm going to do a screen share in a minute. And um, I think it was Jill who commented in the chat the other day that suddenly she felt that the yin and yang symbol was starting to make sense to her. And actually throughout the teachings that we've shared over the the course of the last couple of days. It's a symbol that's been constantly present in my mind because I think it really expresses, although it comes from the Taoist tradition in China, not from the Buddhist tradition, it actually really um, expresses with a lot of um, depth some of the things that we've been talking about. So I just want to um, share that image with you and... um, share a few thoughts around it so let me see that I can if I can do this yes what I don't know how to do is to share that and to still be visible to you too so we might just have this and okay can do this there So Chaya, you're still visible. Yes, I can see. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Not that you might might not want to look at me, but anyway, here I am. So this, you probably all are familiar with this image of, of the yin and the yang, these two polar opposites. They sometimes talked about as the the male and the female, or the active and the passive, or the the active and the receptive, and uh, or light and darkness. And actually it's expressive of the way that whenever one polarity arises, the other is also there. And this is really, you know, it's a two-dimensional symbol that represents uh, a multi-dimensional reality, the, the, the totality of our experience. And how as something comes into being, it's opposite, it's opposite wanes. And just like, say, the moon the moon goes through these cycles of fullness, it reaches its fullness and it starts to to wane. Uh, The sun reaches fullness in the middle of the day and then it starts to, uh, it starts to sink, to set, and then the nighttime arises. Or this morning in the Qigong, I was trying to get you to play with the Noticing the way that the breath, the in-breath comes to fullness. And then if we don't resist it, naturally, the out-breath begins. And when the out-breath comes to completion, naturally, the in-breath re-arises. And I really like also the way that you have these smaller circles inside, inside the larger the larger circle, if you like, as the as the the yang side comes into fullness, at its completion, the yin starts to reemerge. So it's like where the where the where the 
the shadow side becomes fullness, the light becomes full, the light starts to re-emerge from within it. When we become really quiet, when we really drop into silence and stillness, that silence and stillness is not a barren silence and stillness. It's actually pregnant with possibility. As Kirsten shared that beautiful quote from Nagarjuna, um, translated by Stephen Batchelor, were emptiness not possible, nothing would be possible. But because emptiness is possible, everything is possible. So out of the, the emptiness creates the space of possibility out of which the new emerges. And on the other side, when something comes to fullness, to completion, it returns to rest. And so we could look, you know, some of, some of us might find this helpful as a symbol for looking at the way that life is in constant motion of things arising into existence and then falling away again. Just in the way that the, the Buddha described, right in the root original teachings, whatever is subject to arising, whatever is subject to um, constellating or coming together is equally subject to dissolving and fading away again. And if we reflect on the process of life, we can see this happening all around us. But what, gets ha- what happens is that we, we jam it up with our grasping and our resisting, with our wanting and aversion rather than trusting that actually things will come back into balance without our needing to control. And so part of the dance of our practice is learning to flow with this natural waxing and waning of states of mind rather than, so suppose, you know, we are, Um, we're really uh, discovering some joy or some uh, some fullness somewhere. And then instead of just allowing that to follow its own rhythm, we try to hold on to it. And in doing that, we actually start to create the opposite or to invite the opposite more quickly than it would otherwise come. Or if something is difficult, rather than uh, allowing it to subside in its own time, we try to get rid of it and we amplify the difficulty. So we, we kind of jam up this free flow of the natural blowing of the winds of change. Okay, I'm going to stop the share now, come back.
So this middle way, uh, requires a kind of, um, mature approach to relating to pleasure and pain. The middle way between the extremes of self-mortification, self-denial and um, self-indulgence. So there is a kind of renunciation involved in walking the middle way. But it's a renunciation, not of not of pleasure. So I really to to say that actually, you know, life has its moments of coming to fullness in different areas. But it's a renunciation of um, the idea or the belief that getting one thing, getting any particular thing, that there's any particular thing that I can have that's going to make me happy forever afterwards. And we so often, you know, fall into that idea or let ourselves be deluded by that idea. If only I could have X, if only I could get rid of Y, then I'll be happy. If only I could get rid of this pain in the body, then I'll be happy. If only I could have this bar of chocolate. How many times have you, I don't know, maybe it's only ex-nuns who do this, nuns and ex-nuns, but thought that you could eat your way out of samsara with a bar of chocolate or a glass of wine, or whatever it is. If only I can have that, then I'm going to be happy. And the, the goalposts of our happiness keep shifting. Yeah. And as long as we, we, we cling on to that illusion that getting this bar of chocolate, or this relationship, or this whatever, or this sense of achievement or mastery of my meditation, then I will be happy ever after. We're always investing our energy in some kind of promise of future happiness, which is just an idea of the future. And we overlook those times of fullness and contentment that are possible when we just rest back into receiving appreciatively what's here and we can receive appreciatively even when things are imperfect because it's not in the things that the contentment is but in the appreciative reception in that resting back in that releasing releasing the grasping releasing the grasping after wanting something to be different that we can find a fullness that's already here. And there's something about that that is a, a very gentle approach, a fluid approach to being alive. And there's also something powerful and strong in that. So in terms of, you know, the things that we 
the challenges that we face as individuals and collectively as a society, when we become less rigid, and again, this is just echoing what we've already been saying, that actually opens up the space for creativity. If you think of a martial artist, or I've been talking again in the Qigong about, you know, reserving some elasticity for ourselves by not going to our extreme, we reserve some elasticity, and then we can move with more, more power, and more effectiveness. And this is the same, not just in physical movement, but in our agility and moving in life, that actually, if we don't cling to these extremes, if we don't cling to extreme positions, then there's uh, there's the space for things to surprise, for us to be taken by surprise, for us to find surprising ways of moving more creatively with a situation. I'm just thinking, what else do I really want to say? What shall I reserve for the morning? So I've talked more than I than I thought. Just to okay, just to to say again, this is coming back to something I said this morning about, um, you know. So okay, here we are with this predicament that things are constantly changing, and yet we want to find some kind of stable ground. So where is the stable ground in all of this? Where is our refuge? And I would like to suggest that our refuge is in actually in awareness, in the awareness that uh, knows and sees and appreciates the way things are. This is actually really maybe at a profound level what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, the one who's awake, the one who knows, the awake mind. So uh, that which knows change is unchanging. That which knows change is steady, stable. So with our practice, we start to develop, to cultivate, to strengthen this refuge in awareness. We can take refuge in the understanding of the way things are, this refuge in the Dharma, in wisdom. So the understanding that when we grasp onto something that's changing, it's not going to provide us with lasting satisfaction, but recognizing that when we release, when we let go, that actually there's a peacefulness in doing that. And we can take refuge in compassion, in kindness, and the knowledge with that, that we're not alone, that we're not alone Refuge in Sangha, in community. There are many other people who are waking up and have woken up to this way of being in the world, to this way of perceiving, to this way of experiencing reality and the way of trusting it. 
So these are the these are the things that provide some solid ground rather than these shifting goalposts of my happiness, that my cushions are arranged right, that my relationships are working out, that my chocolate supply is perfect and that I've eaten not too much and not too little of my chocolate supply and so forth. You know, that my body is doing the things that I want it to do. Because as we get older, they sure don't. You know, <laughs> some of us taste that reality sooner than others, but it comes to all of us. So what are we going to take refuge in? Okay, that's enough of my words. And I want to um, share, a, share a reading with you, but maybe you might want to just have a little stretch or move or something before I do that, because we've been still for a while. And then I'll share the reading and then we'll have a little time for meditation. So when we talk about um, the way of non-preference or non-preferring, I always get tempted to read um, the verses that some of you may know from the third Zen patriarch. So the third Zen patriarch was a Chinese because before Zen went to Japan it was Chan in China so the third patriarch of Chan or Zen Buddhism Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head the date of this Uh, maybe around the I don't know actually I wouldn't even venture a guess around 900 AD or something some people can People might know and fill me in, but it's not really important. But the third patriarch of Zen Buddhism in China wrote these beautiful verses called the verses on the mind of absolute trust or the faith mind. And many people know the opening lines of this. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to preferences. The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's translated for those who, who have no preferences, but that's actually a misrepresentation because we all have preferences. We can't not have preferences. You know, as, as sentient beings, we experience Vedana feeling tones that tell us what's yummy for us, what's what's going to be good for us, for our survival, for our physical well-being, and what's not. We're wired up to have those preferences. But a wise person is not enslaved to those, is not attached to those preferences. 
So the great way is not difficult for those not attached to their preferences. So I get tempted to read you those verses, which you can find online. And they are, uh, they were a beloved text of one of my favorite monks in the monastery when I was a, a nun, Ajahn Vimalo. And he loved them so much that he'd memorized them all by heart. And he would often recite them in his Dharma talks. And they're very beautiful, but they're not quite as beautiful to me as what I want to read to you instead, which is from the Tibetan tradition. It's also talking about the great way or the awakened mind. Uh, it's from the Mahamudra tradition. So Mahamudra means the great seal. And it's used in different ways in the tradition. And it's used also you know, like all these things, it becomes part of some philosophical controversies and, you know, jockeying for the position between schools that we've really got the right vehicle and they haven't. And those Hinayanists who just do Samatha and Vipassana, you know, they're not at this advanced point yet. And for some good reasons, often these teachings are um, reserved for advanced students there's this sense that uh partly because in that tradition you know you um yeah you work with you work with a guru or a teacher who titrates what's offered to you to your level of understanding or what's perceived as your level of understanding but nowadays of course these teachings are available to all of us in books and on the internet and so on. And so I've not done really much Tibetan practice at all, but I found this uh, again in a, in a book in the, when I was a nun, a book that some of you also might know, it's a translation of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the perfection of wisdom from the Tibetan and Sanskrit by a translator called Lex Hickson. The book is called the mother of the Buddhas. And I just, this, these, these words spoke to me so much, this song of the Mahamudra spoke to me so much that I actually learned it by heart one retreat that I was on one summer and I can't do it by heart right now, but I'm, I'd like to read it to you. And describing, uh, describing this realization of non-duality really, but in a way that I find quite warm and juicy and full of beautiful imagery. So what I'd suggest that you do is that you just rest and listen and allow it to just, um, what's the word, percolate in your awareness and don't sort of think about trying to figure it out. But if any of the images or the, the words speak to you, just let them soak in and there are many, many bits of it that I found as a kind of really helpful over the years as an inspiration for practice or an encouragement for my practice or to give a little steer to my practice. And it's, uh, it's called the Song of the Mahamudra and it's a teaching given by um, the Tibetan adept Tilopa to his student Naropa or maybe they were from North India but anyway they were practicing in the Himalayas in around the uh, 12th century AD I think they both became masters in this in this lineage so this is how it goes 
Mahamudra being the, the awakened mind. Mahamudra, the royal way, is free from every word and sacred symbol. For you alone, beloved Naropa, this wonderful song springs forth from Tilopa as spontaneous friendship that never ends. The completely open nature of all dimensions and events is a rainbow always occurring, yet never grasped. The way of Mahamudra creates no closure, no strenuous mental effort can encounter this wide open way. The effortless freedom of awareness moves naturally along it. As space is always, always freshly appearing and never filled, so the mind is without limits and ever aware. Gazing with sheer awareness into sheer awareness, habitual abstract structures melt into the fruitful springtime of Buddhahood. White clouds that drift through blue sky, changing shape constantly, have no root, no foundation, no dwelling nor do changing patterns of thought that float through the sky of mind. When the formless expanse of awareness comes clearly into view, obsession with thought forms ceases easily and naturally. As within the openness of universal space, shapes and colours are spontaneously forming, although space has no colour or form. So within the expanse of awareness, realms, relations and values are arising, although awareness possesses no positive or negative characteristics. As the darkness of night, even if it were to last a thousand years, could not conceal the rising sun. So countless ages of conflict and suffering cannot conceal the innate radiance of mind. Although philosophers explain the transparent openness of appearances as empty of permanent characteristics and completely indeterminable, this universal indeterminacy itself can never be determined. Although sages report the nature of awareness to be luminosity, this limitless radiance cannot be contained within any language or sacramental system. Although the very essence of mind is to be void of either subjects or objects, it tenderly embraces all life within its womb. To realize this inexpressible truth, do not manipulate mind or body, 
but simply open into transparency with relaxed natural grace, intellect at ease in silence, limbs at rest in stillness like hollow bamboos. Neither breathing in nor breathing out with the breath of habitual thinking, allow the mind to be at peace in brilliant wakefulness. This is the royal wealth of Mahamudra, no common coin of any realm. Beloved Naropa, this treasure of Buddhahood belongs to you and to all beings. Obsessive use of meditative disciplines or perennial study of scripture and philosophy will never bring forth this wonderful realization, this truth which is natural to awareness. Because the mind that desperately desires to reach another realm or level of experience inadvertently ignores the basic light that constitutes all experience. The one who fabricates any division in consciousness betrays the friendship of Mahamudra Cease all activity that separates. Abandon even the desire to be free from desires. And allow the thinking process to arise and fall smoothly as waves on a shoreless ocean. The one who never dwells in abstraction and whose only principle is never to divide or separate upholds the trust of Mahamudra. The one who abandons craving for authority and definition and never becomes one-sided in argument or understanding, alone perceives the authentic meaning hidden in the ancient scriptures. In the blissful embrace of Mahamudra, negative viewpoints and their instincts are burned without remainder like camphor. Through the open door of Mahamudra, the deluded state of self-imprisonment is easily left behind forever. Mahamudra is the torch of supreme liberty shining forth through all conscious beings. Those beings constituted by awareness who try to ignore, reject or grasp awareness inflict sorrow and confusion upon themselves like those who are insane. To be awakened from this madness, cultivate the gracious friendship of a sublime sage of Mahamudra who may appear to the world as mad. When the limited mind enters blessed companionship with limitless mind, indescribable freedom dawns. Selfish or limited motivations create the illusory sense of imprisonment and scatter seeds of further delusion. Even genuine religious teaching can generate narrowness of vision. Trust only the approach that is utterly vast and profound. 
the noble way of Mahamudra never engages in the drama of imprisonment and release. The sage of Mahamudra has absolutely no distractions because no war against distractions has ever been declared. This nobility and gentleness alone, this non-violence of thought and action, is the traceless path of all Buddhas. To walk this all-embracing way is the bliss of Buddhahood. Phenomena on every plane of being are constantly arising and disappearing. Thus they are forever fresh, always new and inexhaustible. Like dreams without solid substance, they can never become rigid or binding. The universe exists in a deep, elusive way that can never be grasped or frozen. Why feel obsessive desire or hatred for it, thereby creating illusory bonds? Renounce arbitrary habitual views. Go forth courageously to meditate in the real mountain wilderness, the wide open Mahamudra. Transcend boundaries of kinship by embracing all living beings as one family of consciousness. Remain without any compulsion in the landscape of natural freedom, spontaneous, generous, joyful. When you receive the crown of Mahamudra, all sense of rank or attainment will quietly disappear. Cut the root of the vine that chokes the tree and its clinging tendrils wither away entirely. Sever the conventionally grasping mind and all bondage and desperation dissolve. The illumination from an oil lamp lights the room instantly, even if it has been dark for eons. Mind is boundless radiance. How can the slightest darkness remain in the room of daily perception? But one who clings to mental processes cannot awaken to the radiance of mind. Strenuously seeking truth by investigation and concentration, one will never appreciate the unthinkable simplicity and bliss that abide at the core. To uncover this fertile ground, cut through the roots of complexity with the sharp gaze of naked awareness, remaining entirely at peace, transparent and content. You need not expend great effort nor store up extensive spiritual power. Remain in the flow of sheer awareness. Mahamudra neither accepts nor rejects any current of energy, internal or external. Since the ground consciousness is never born into any realm of being, nothing can add to or subtract from it. Nothing can obstruct or stain it. When awareness rests here, the appearance of division and conflict disappears into original reality. 
the twin emotions of anxiety and arrogance vanish into the void from which they came. Supreme knowing knows no separate subject or object. Supreme action acts resourcefully without any array of instruments. Supreme attainment attains the goal without past, future or present. The dedicated practitioner experiences the spiritual way as a turbulent mountain stream tumbling dangerously among boulders. When maturity is reached, the river flows smoothly and patiently with the powerful sweep of the Ganges. Emptying into the ocean of Mahamudra, the water becomes ever-expanding light that pours into great clear light without direction, destination, division, distinction or description. So let's just sit quietly together for a few minutes.
So there's no need to grasp or to hold on to anything that you've heard or to try to figure out the bits that seem mystifying. Just trust that the heart and the mind, just as the body has this intelligence that it knows what to do, the heart and the mind knows what to take in, what to absorb, what to what to put where in its innermost filing system. And that the fathoming of these kinds of teachings is something that happens over many years, maybe even many lifetimes of practice as they reveal new layers of meaning to us. And at the same time, they point to something very, very simple. Something I love about the simplicity of the very earliest Buddhist teachings. when Kirsten was talking about the Buddha realizing his awakening and then thinking this is too complicated to teach anyone. I don't think I can do it. And then the devas came to him or Brahma Sahampati, the, the chief of the devas, the highest of the of the gods, the heavenly beings came to him and said, please, there are beings here with but little dust in their eyes, please, out of compassion, teach the Dharma for these beings who will hear it and will understand. And when the Buddha began to do that, a cry rose up through the Deva realms saying the doors to the deathless have been opened. The doors to the deathless are open. And this door is always open and in any moment we can walk through it. Maybe we don't just walk through it once, maybe we walk through it again and again, every time that a little bit of clinging is released, a little bit of confusion is let go of, a little bit of suffering dissolves. And as we do that, our faith grows, our trust grows, our trust in this process.
Another beautiful, beautiful line from the Mula Sutta. The root of all things. Yielding deliverance as essence are all things. Every moment of experience contains in it a doorway to freedom. When we trust where to look. So we all have different bodies, different minds, different circumstance. If you're feeling quiet and you just want to continue to sit, you can do that. If you would feel happier to move around, do some walking or look after your body in some other way, we can do that. And then in just over 30 minutes, we can come back for those of us who are, still have the energy and whose time zone it suits, we can come back for a half hour final practice together to end our day. So thank you for listening. I hope some of this has been useful and just anything that's not helpful, just let it go, let it vanish back into the void from which it came. Doesn't need to be held on to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.